Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. There are two happenings, two incidents presently that push us to the same question. Two separate things happening culturally at the same moment that are, I think, pushing us to the same centralized question. The first of these happenings is uh, the word of revival in Asbury. Students at the college had collected for some two weeks, and they were singing and praying and repenting. Uh, I've read reports that some fifty to 70,000 people descended on this community. It's normally 6,000 people. That the message given from Romans 12, that was a call to love in action, set forth the series of events of, of, of people responding to God's presence. Some people have asked me what I think about this, and truth is, only time will tell about the legitimacy or illegitimacy of this thing. In fact, every major revival has had both genuine and counterfeit portions. But more to the point, it's not our job to assess the legitimacy or illegitimacy of this, we should also expect that God works in many ways in many different places. He works in Asbury and Azerbaijan, that he's always working wherever he is, and we should count on that. So it's the first incident. Second incident is the a movie of all things. This weekend saw the release of Jesus Revolution, a film about the surprising work of God in the Calvary Chapel movement. The movie chronicles the partnership of Pastor Chuck Smith and Pentecostal evangelist Lonnie Frisbee as God just does a work in California amongst this group of hippies in the 1960s. These two independent happenings have presented us with one common question. What does it look like when God's deity comes in contact with humanity? What should we anticipate mankind would do when God seems to pull back the veil? In Asbury, they sang, right? We saw video after video of, of this people, of 2,000 people just sitting in this auditorium singing and singing and singing. In California, as you watch this film, it's baptism after baptism after baptism, and it seems like the Lord just pulled back the veil and showed himself. See, in our text today, Moses meets God. Humanity is brought into the presence of deity. Moses stumbles onto the holy ground, and we see humanity and deity both receive greater definition. God is pictured as holy and gracious, and Moses is pictured as unsure and unwilling. See, here's where I think we're headed here this morning. God shows his strength by using weak people to accomplish his saving purpose. God shows his strength by using weak people like Moses to show 
to accomplish his saving purpose. We're going to see this in just three different movements. I've got a lot of text in front of us here this morning, but God reveals himself in a burning bush in verses 1 through 10, and Moses kind of uh, stumbles upon this scenario, and Moses starts asking all kinds of questions as God calls him to this uh, redeeming, uh, reconcile, well, redeeming work as he's going to pull Israel out of Egypt. Moses has questions in verses 11 through 22, and suddenly those Questions turn into objections in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 4. God reveals himself, Moses questions, Moses objects. Let's dive in this morning. First, we see that God reveals himself in a burning bush. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. See, Moses sees this peculiar bush, and he investigates. This bush never burns up. And verse 2 tells us that the Lord is in this bush. Now, we don't really... Uh, there's kind of debate about what that means. Like there's uh, Matir and Chester, and they say that this is Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus there in the midst of the bush. And he's, he's there speaking to Moses, his glory veiled by the smoke, and he's present in the fire. Others like uh, uh, Jim Hamilton say that this is just an angelic presence that is representative of the Lord. But either way, God is speaking there through a burning bush to Moses. Now, you need to understand that throughout the book of Exodus, every time fire shows up, it's like the presence of the Lord is manifested, right? Exodus chapter 3, God shows up in this burning bush. In Exodus chapter 13, God leads Israel in a pillar of fire. In Exodus 19, when they come back to Mount Sinai, fire descends from heaven on the mountain of God, and His thunder and lightning. God is present in this fire, right? Fire is a funny thing. It warms, but it can also burn. It cleanses and destroys. But notice that this fire is unfueled fire. It's burning the bush, but not burning the bush, if it were, right? That is the picture of a bush that's on fire, but doesn't burn. It's unique, right? It shows a a God who is self-existent. He's not consuming anything around him. He exists on his own. Stands in contrast to what we saw just a few chapters ago of Pharaoh who has to have the Hebrews around to support his nation. Who has to have the slaves in his homeland so that he can do the things he wants to do. This God doesn't soak up resources. This God exists on his own. So what happens is in verses 4 through 6, God speaks and directs Moses. Look at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take uh, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
Notice what God does here. He calls, he directs, and he introduces himself. He calls from the bush in verse 4. He calls out and says, Moses, Moses. He calls him by name. He makes it unmistakable that he's speaking directly to this lone man walking out in the middle of the wilderness, right? And it recalls Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham goes up to the Mount uh, Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son, and he lays his son on the altar, and God calls out to, Moses, to Abraham. He says, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham calls back and says, here I am, right? This is kind of a replaying of that scene. So Abraham, Moses are alike in the way God speaks to them and calls their attention. And verse 5, God directs, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Notice the direction. Don't come near. Moses' sandals are are too dirty to be worn. There's so many stories in the Old Testament of those that just kind of uh, casually stumble into the presence of God, and and they're not taking serious the holiness of God. It's Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. It's Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. It's Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. All of these took the presence of God lightly, and all of them paid for their violations of his holiness. And so God introduces himself. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He ties Moses' history to himself, and he says, the God your father worshipped, and the father, the God your grandfather worshipped, and the God your great-grandfathers worshipped. That's me. I am the means of their blessing. And so what happens, the cumulative effect of this in verse 6 is that Moses hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. He knows the history of this God. He knows he cannot come into his presence. This isn't the first time we've seen Moses afraid, is it? Remember when Moses is burying bodies in the sand? Exodus 2, verse 14, it tells us that he was afraid, and that's why he fled Egypt in the first place. It's right for him to be afraid here. This is the proper response. But Moses has moved from fearing Pharaoh to fearing the Lord. Now notice how God directs him. Verses 7 through 12. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, behold, The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Notice that what God says is he's seen, he's heard, he knows. If we look back at Exodus chapter 2, that's what we just saw at the close of the last chapter. In fact, I think we have it on the screen. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. 
the same language that's used here in verse 7. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. He has heard their cry. He knows their sufferings. But notice what, what God does with this hearing and knowing and remembering. He comes down. God has come down to deliver in verses 8 through 10. Verse 8 tells us that God came down. And again, this isn't new to our Old Testament. God came down at Babel. He came down to almost kind of investigate this tiny tower that was being created. He came down in Genesis 18 to investigate the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And now he comes down, but he's not coming down to judge. He's coming down to deliver because he's heard the cries of the Israelites. He has come down, but this time not in judgment. This time he comes as a deliverer and as a redeemer. See These early verses in our chapter, they show us this, that there's, there's a tension between humanity and deity. That Humanity can't just stumble into God's presence without there being consequence, that even as he's invited to kind of take off these sandals that, that would defile the ground, he's recognizing this tension that exists. When I walked into the building this morning, nothing changed. The ground didn't change. There was no holy ground that we were walking on. But when God shows up in the bush, he changes the sum and the substance of the bush itself. He, he changes as everything he touches is now holy and dedicated to him. If you ever read the book of Leviticus, like some of you scoff at just the concept of reading the book of Leviticus, right? Yeah, that's what I said. You read the book of Leviticus and you, you get introduced to these concepts of uncleanness and defilement. There were animals and objects marked as unclean. The other objects which might normally be acceptable in God's presence, which had been defiled by various sets and circumstances. Israel was invited to recognize that. God gave his people a lens with which to see the world. Some things were given by God for blessing, and other things were to be avoided in faithfulness to God. The point is that every atom on God's earth carried this distinction, clean and unclean. These Old Testament laws were given to Israel as a lens by which they could see the world as God made it, that there was this kind of duality about it, right? There were things that God was using that he could actively use because it was clean, and there were things that weren't clean yet, that he was going to clean as he's making all things new. See, this morning we recognize that sinful humanity and deity don't mix. I remember being a kid and I went to a friend's house and he had this little jar with a single fish in it. And I said, well, why don't you have more fish than just one lame fish, Right? He said, no, that's a beta fish. And if I put another fish in there, that fish will eat the fish. And I was entranced by this bloodthirsty death fish that this friend had in his house. See, the point was that this fish would not cede any territory to another. He wasn't going to give up his spot in the bowl. In the same way, our God will not cede his holiness to accommodate the sinfulness of man. We come into God's presence, something has to change. I wonder if we've lost sight of this. 
50s and 60s, Time Magazine read, ran an article that ran the headline, Is God Dead? In the 1980s, Shirley MacLaine made the statement, I am God, and you are God, and we are all gods. Oprah Winfrey in the early 2000s said that you need to find your truth. And time after time, we've been inundated with this idea that you can make yourself acceptable to God. If we just pull God off of his throne, if we just make him a little less than he is and make ourselves a little more than we are, all of a sudden we can be in the presence of the divine. What we recognize this morning is if you bring my sinful flesh before the holiness of God, I will be destroyed. You will be destroyed. Notice what God wants to do here. And this thing that God wants to do hangs on the shoulders of Moses. Look at verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you. And what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. What's going on here? See, as we continue in our text, Moses starts with these questions. You can see the, a listing of these questions. Mo. He's got questions and objections, right? Starts off in verse 11. He says, who am I? In verse 13, who are you? Chapter 4, verse 1, they're not going to believe me. 4.10, I'm not eloquent. Finally, in verse 12 of chapter 4, he says, send someone else. You see a natural progression here that starts with questions and moves to resolutions. 
So I want to just take a second just to investigate these questions. Question number one is this, who am I, right? This verbatim, what he says there in verse 11 of chapter 3. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And at first we might think this sounds like humility, that this sounds like uh, self-deference. But when we consider the general flow of Moses' interaction, it sounds more and more like an objection. The tone of the question seems to be, why me? And his statement is a proud objection, not one of astonished humility. It's a proud Moses that assumes that God only calls and uses the qualified. And God's answer tells us so much here, right? I will be with you in verse 12. God's response isn't what we might think it would have been, right? If, If we're interacting with Moses, say, Moses, no, 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 you're somebody, Moses. You grew up in the house of Pharaoh, Moses. You're educated, Moses. But God's interaction with Moses is, I will be with you. Tim Chester says, Moses does not need to have a higher self-esteem. He needs a greater sense of God's presence. So God gives Moses a sign in verse 12. This is weird to us, right? Like typically we think of signs as something that's performed in the moment that propels us to right action. But what God's actually doing here is saying, you know, this is going to happen. And the very thing that I'm telling you is going to happen actually validates what I'm about to do. See, this is strange to us because we don't know our geography. But if you pull up a map, which I stole this from the Jehovah's Witness website. I hope that doesn't taint it in any way. You can see the red circles. The red circle to the left is Egypt. The red circle to the right is Israel, Canaan. And if you're going to go from one place to the other, you would take the straight shot, right? What God's telling them is they're going to go straight from Egypt down to the blue circle, Sinai, and then head back up to Canaan. I'm going to take you down to Sinai. You're going to come back to this mountain and worship with me. We're taking a bit of circuitous route. It's like me saying, hey, tomorrow I'm going to go from Dayton to Cleveland, but I'm going to do a little stop and chill coffee. Doesn't make any sense. See, the sign of God's presence is this pit stop to meet with God so that he could be with them. Like he's meeting with Moses right now. These people of Israel need to meet with him. And so Moses asks, why me? And the second question is, why you? Who are you? What's your name? Who shall I say is sending me in verse 13? I find it fascinating. Don't you find it fascinating that we're here in the second book of the Old Testament and nobody knows the name of God? Until this point, Israel was content to speak of God as as the God of great-grandpa, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? But nobody knows his actual name. And here now Moses finally wants the validation of knowing God's name. And it has significance because in the ancient world, if you knew a God's name, you could call on him at any moment to take care of the business that you had going on. Like, right, like I'm in a fight in the marketplace and I call upon the God of whatever to come and help me. 
or I could invoke the names of these deities for, for my uh, crops or my fertility or whatever else it was. I could use their name to get what I wanted. And this is why uh, back in Genesis 32, Jacob's wrestling with God and he's saying, tell me your name. Tell me your name. I want your blessing. So Moses is, is here saying, what, what's your name? What should I say? And, and the name that God gives to Moses actually precludes the possibility of his manipulation. Look at what he says in verses 14 through 17. He says, I am that I am. I'm not sure I even possess the skills to kind of unpack what all of this means, but Tim Chester tells us that that means three different phrases are true simultaneously. I have been what I've been. I am that which I am, and I will be what I will be. I am self-existent. Nothing impinges upon my existence. He's past, present, future. Nothing changes him. Nothing alters him. Nothing strays his course. He's pre-existent and self-sufficient. I am that I am. Years ago, a philosopher by the name of Rene Descartes set out to prove that he exists. And so he came up with this phrase in his discourse on the method. He said, I think, therefore I am. And it was this kind of logical proof. If I have thoughts, that proves that I in some sense exist. But here, the God of heaven says, I am that I am, and that's enough. He's real. He exists. He's true. His words prove it. God gives Moses more than just his name. Verse 15, he taps into this history. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He uses this phrase in his self-description just to say that he's not just this self-existent, far-removed, transcendent God. He's been here. He's been dealing with you and with your family. He has this history with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and your father's He's not self-existently aloof. He's one who relates to mankind. So what he does is he gives direction. Moses is to gather the elders of Israel in verses 16 and 17. He's supposed to say say this. He said, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob has appeared to me. And he's to tell them that God has observed them, that he's seen them, right? Kind of taps back into what Moses heard at at the beginning and what closed out chapter two. But also God would deliver. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he gives this string of predictions, right? He says, um, Israel was going to believe Moses in verse 18. And then in verses 19 and 20, that Egypt will let Israel go. More specifically, that God will show Pharaoh his mighty hand. And because of that, Egypt will let Israel go. And in verses 21 through 22, they're not just going to be let go. They're going to be rich. There's gold and silver jewelry. There's clothing that they're going to be sent out the door with. This is going to be this expression of God's mighty, powerful hand. Now, in the midst of that statement, how does Moses respond? He's got another question. In fact, it's not really much of a question so much as a statement. Look at chapter 14, or excuse me, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Moses answered, but behold, 
they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. I would too. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside the cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, you may, uh, they may be, believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So Moses raises his objection. God has just told him this magnificent promise. You're going to be delivered from Egypt. Israel's going to listen to you. You're going to go out with great riches. And Moses raises his voice and he says, Israel's not going to believe me. Despite what he just told them in chapter 3, verse 18, Moses doubts. And so God gives signs. The first sign is that Moses throws his staff onto the ground and it turns into a serpent. Moses is afraid of the serpent and runs away. I heard a story recently about a town in some place like in Missouri where they have this snake collecting day. They go and they go out into the bushes and they rack up as many snakes as they can to produce venom. And I thought that's why nuclear weapons exist. Just clear all the people out, wipe that town out. We're all much better for it, right? Here's it. Moses, throwing down his staff, becomes a serpent, and God tells him to grab it by the tail, which is a bad idea. If it weren't for the presence of God, it's a bad idea, right? You want to grab a tail or a snake by the head so it doesn't bite you. He grabs it by his tail in faith, and it becomes a staff yet again. You, know, you notice that um, you ever see like uh, King Tut's tomb or uh, the, the bodies of the pharaohs and they have this headdress on and the front thing on it is a snake. And God's in essence telling Moses, hey, I control the snake. I control the snake. I harden Pharaoh's heart. I soften it as I will. So he gives him a second sign and Moses turns his hand into uh, to leprous. He puts it inside his cloak. It turns leprous. He puts it back inside. It becomes right again. God is sovereign over disease, which we'll see in the plagues. Sign number three, take some water from the Nile and just pour it out on the ground and it will become blood. Preclusion of the first sign that will be performed, the first of the plagues. Notice that all three of these things aren't exactly positive. Like God didn't choose to write like, hey, believe Moses in the sky and clouds or, you know, make a flock of butterflies descend on Moses or something else. This is death and disease. I show that God has control of all things. And they preview some of the things that are coming. And, and it's like God's just taking Mo Moses aside and saying, no, this is what I can do. This is a small bit of what I can do. You can trust me. 
Moses responds, verses 10 and 12. He says, I'm not, I'm not eloquent. Look at verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I, I'm not eloquent. Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and of tongue. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses, I'm going to fill your mouth. Moses brings up another objection. Well, it's not really an objection so much as a statement. Verse 13, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. You ever feel like that? God, send somebody else. This is too much for me. I can't do this thing you're calling me to right now. What God says, verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Notice that God rejects Moses' supplication to not send or not go, to send someone else. No, I'm going to bring Aaron. Aaron's going to go with you. In fact, he's already on his way. I love that verse 14 in the midst of all of these questions and all of this foot dragging that's happening with Moses, God's anger finally burns. There's so much patience on display here. And finally, God's anger burns, but he doesn't act out in his anger. He provides a solution. He doesn't destroy Moses and turn him into a pile of ashes. So the God who, who made mouths, now fills Aaron and Moses' mouth. And he sends Moses to do the thing that he wants to accomplish. We have this question then, right? This question of what happens when we bring humanity of Moses into the presence of the deity of the Father, of God. Moses has to change. Moses has to become something different. He's got to take the sandals off his feet. He's got to be changed. It was interesting when we kind of raised this question of what happens when humanity and deity come together, that Jesus is the ultimate expression of humanity and deity come together. God's holiness required our conformity to his holiness, right? God wasn't going to compromise his holiness to accommodate our sinfulness. We tend to think like Moses does, don't we? We tend to think that our capability makes us acceptable to God's purpose and agenda. That's Moses' complaint all the Who am I? I'm not eloquent of speech. Send someone else. Like Moses, we assume that he's after us because of our capability, because of our skill set, and nothing could be further from the truth. If we are to come into God's presence, it will not be because of our skill set or our capacity. If we are to come into God's presence, we must fundamentally change who we are. 
And this presents a dilemma to us because how do we fundamentally change ourselves? How do we change what we are? I just have a moment of confession. The other night I was awake at like three in the morning and I decided at three in the morning that I needed to stop drinking diet cola. It was a stupid idea when I thought of it the first time. But sure enough, what did I do before my next meal? I was drinking diet cola. The thing I I told myself I shouldn't do, I was already doing. We are a walking contradiction. The things we love and desire, we say we love and desire, that's what we the opposite of what we actually do sometimes. You and I have as much a chance at changing ourselves as, as my dog has of becoming a cat or a leopard changing its spots. That people don't become holy on their own. In fact, when Paul was talking about this in Romans 7, the culmination of Romans chapter 7 is this. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? I I can't change myself. But what happened is that Jesus brought all of God's deity into one body. Jesus brought all of his deity into humanity and kind of placed it inside of that, right? In the book of John, we just saw that there's these seven I am statements that Jesus gives us. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus is tapping into what God named himself here in Exodus chapter three. He says, I'm that guy. That's who I am. I'm the self-existent one, but I'm here and I'm in the flesh. I'm the self-existent one that that doesn't need a bush to burn, so to speak. I'm the one who exists, who's present. I, I don't need anything else, but I'm here in a body. See, Jesus brought deity into our humanity. He embodied the fullness of God in human flesh, and he would again say, I am. But this time, he said it through human lips, through a human tongue. And he put sandals on his feet rather than taking them off. Jesus represents the fullness of God in the person of a human body. He died to bring humanity into the presence of deity. By his death, Jesus has made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins so that now our humanity can be safe harbor for God's fullness of the spirit and the fullness of deity to dwell in us. By Jesus' death, humanity and deity can coexist without clashing. It's good news, isn't it? See, what we have here is a story of human weakness and divine capability. Moses is not the right person. He's not eloquent of speech. He's not even in good terms with the Israelites. And he's not really on good terms with the Egyptians either. But what God is telling him is, I will be with you. I will fill your mouth. See, what Moses' story teaches us this morning is a story of weakness and of divine strength. In fact, I would say that's the story of the book of Exodus in so many terms. 
that God uses a humble servant, strengthens him through his presence, and conforms him over time to his will, to his image. This morning, we walk away from this story. We say, let's embrace our weakness in hope of finding God's strength. Let's embrace our weakness in the hope of finding God's strength. Moses' response shows us some of the reactions we might have as God reveals himself, right? We look at Moses' reaction to God, and we see him afraid in verse 6. We see him confused in chapter 4, verse 1, and we see him doubting himself in verse 11 of chapter 4. The presence of God disorients us because we're so accustomed to these patterns of self-reliance and self-strength. God often confronts our prideful self-reliance with his powerful presence. Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God and thereby learns how to be blessed by God in his weakness. Genesis 11, God thwarts the power of the people through the confusion of language so that they can turn to him in reliance. There's this fascinating passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul is writing and he's saying, hey, like, I'm going to go on boasting. I don't, you know, in the context of the letter, he's talking about his resume, as it were. He's saying how foolish it is for him to go on boasting. And he talks about how he was taken into this third heaven and given a vision of God. And then he says, but in order to, to keep me humble, there was a thorn in the flesh that was given to me too. And he asked three times that the Lord would take that away. Now, this is what he states in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, now listen to this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God makes his power known in human weakness. He takes sinners and creates saints. He takes a self-effacing, stuttering Moses and makes him the deliverer of a nation. God takes weak things and makes them strong with his presence. So what happens when humanity comes in contact with divinity? And God is truly at work. We should find humility, shouldn't we? Sense that this presence of God is not deserved or natural to me. When God's truly at work, we should find practices of holiness. We should traffic in, in the regular confession and repentance from sin. When we want to really say that God's at work in our midst, we should find ourselves uh, being humiliated. That didn't come out right. We should find ourselves being humbled, find ourselves being made holy. Maybe we might assess those movements of God through those lenses. This morning, I want to leave a, a few seconds, maybe 60 seconds here, just to reflect on what God's speaking to us here, to call us to weakness, to say, Lord, I, I need your presence with me. And we have it, right? Jesus told us, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Not that we need God's presence. We already have it. We need to recognize the presence of God. 
to rely upon it, not to do things in our own strength and say, I'm going to accomplish X, Y, and Z today. I'm going to lean instead. I'm going to lean on the presence of the Spirit to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish this day. Just take a moment to reflect. Father, we thank you. Thank you that it's your agenda to meet our weakness with your strength. Most notably, when we could not change ourselves to be in your holy presence, you sent Jesus. And in his humanity and deity became a sacrifice for our sin. So we thank you that you have changed us. Lord, you've given us new resurrected life and you've given us the spirit that dwells inside of us. So Lord, I pray that you would bring about holiness and righteousness, that your presence would be palpable with us, that you would allow us strength and wisdom in your sight because of your presence with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.